This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Last week, we talked about Lazarus, the friend of Jesus who had died, and Jesus visits him in the village of Bethany. He comes to the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he brings Lazarus back to life. And he tells Martha and Mary that he is the resurrection and the life. How many of you are thankful today that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And I'm thankful that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But today, I believe that God wants to move all of us from the tomb to the table. From the tomb to the table. The table is a symbolic picture of many things throughout the scriptures, but above all things, it is a picture of grace. It is a place of blessing. And it is the environment where friendship can be cultivated. Can I say those three again for you? The table is a place of grace, it's a place of blessing, and it is a place of friendship. I believe that God has set an invitation before all of us to join him at his table of grace, a place of undeserved, unmerited favor, where he's got a name tag and a seat with your name on it, a place setting set so eloquently just for you. The question I want to ask you today is, will you respond to his invitation to join him at his table. I love the imagery that the table provides us. How many just had Thanksgiving dinner with your friends or with your family? Many of you. How many of you left town and and visited family in another state, another county, another region? Okay. So the table can be a complicated place for some of us because the table sometimes represents the brokenness, right? We're reminded of, of the people that aren't at the table with us because of divorce, sometimes because of separation, sometimes because of death, sometimes because of loss, sometimes because of hurt. Sometimes it's the people that aren't at the table that we're reminded of that cause us to avoid the table. But the table is not meant to be a place of brokenness. The table is meant to be a place of grace, of blessing, and of friendship, where all of us can find our seat and recline. Go with me to the book of John. Picking up where we left off last week, chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, it says this. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Remember the guy he raised from the dead? This was the man that Jesus raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for Jesus there. And Martha served, of course. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. So I want you to get the image here. The Bible doesn't say that he was sitting up properly and formally with his hands and his fork and knife all nice and set with his elbows off, you know, like you do when you're at a formal dinner. I remember my grandma, she used to say, get your elbows off the table. And she'd smack me across the table with like a a stick or something when I was little. 
They used to teach manners, table manners. Remember that? Manners school for some of you guys that are old enough to remember? Yeah. We could probably do for that again. I have to tell my kids all the time, sit up straight, right? Don't, don't slouch. Don't put your elbows on the table. Don't hang out. Don't do that. And, and, that's, and there's a place for that. But what's interesting is that in this picture, if we could put that scripture up there and just leave it, chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. If we could do that, that would be great. They're working on it. In this picture, we don't get a picture of Lazarus sitting up straight and everybody with napkins on their laps. No, it says that they were reclining with him at the table. So I want you to get this picture of Lazarus just kind of hanging, hanging. Let me get real. Can I really recline today? Is that all right? Just really reclining here. And Jesus is sitting next to him. Jesus, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> and he's relaxed. I'd like to think that maybe one of his belt loops has been let out. Who knows, maybe he ate too much turkey and so he popped his, his, uh, his tab and he's just got his thumb and he's just hanging out. He's relaxed. He's reclining at the table. You see, when you're reclining, you're relaxed. You're safe. You're secure. You're not worried about what people think of you. You're not worried about grandma reaching over and whacking your, your wrists or telling you to sit up straight. No, you're at home, H-O-M-E. You're at a place of rest because the people that are with you love you and they know you and they accept you and there's no insecurity involved. And that's the image of the disciples here with Jesus, fully known, fully loved, fully known, fully loved, accepted at home. And that's the picture that I believe that God sets before all of us today to respond to his invitation of grace, to join him at his table. Once again, a place of grace, a place of blessing, a place of friendship. Can you say that you are one of Jesus's friends today? I hope so. And hopefully by the end of this message, some of you who have never felt like a friend of God will respond to that invitation to become one. The reason why I believe it's so important for us as the church and as the people of God to answer the invitation to step into the light, to come into a place of freedom. Last week, we talked about our baggage and our hurts and our hangups and our habits. And we, we talked about becoming vulnerable and honest with the things that sometimes we don't want people to know about because we're scared or we're intimidated. And so as a result, we put on our masks and we camouflage and we hide and we do all that we can to try to not let anybody in, Right? But I believe that what ends up happening as a result is we keep ourselves from the table. We keep ourselves from the place that Jesus has invited us to sit. And I think there are probably many reasons why we avoid the table. There are many reasons why we do this. But today I just want to talk about three of them because I think that every one of us can relate to these three reasons. Are you with me today? The first reason that I think we avoid the table is the fear of rejection. The fear of rejection. Let's face it, nobody wants to be rejected. I counsel men all the time, and this is the number one fear that men face, particularly in working through issues 
in their marriage. Their wife has said something to them that makes them feel rejected. And as a result of that rejection, what's their response? Come on, men. You get angry, right? You get upset. You lose your cool. You say things that you wish you could take back, right? Am I the only one? All right. Because deep down, what are you really afraid of? You're afraid of that person who you've opened yourself up to rejecting you. You're afraid of rejection. And I believe that God doesn't want the fear of rejection to keep us from the place that he has prepared for us to dwell. But this is exactly what we see in the scriptures in Genesis, don't we? You guys know the story, Genesis chapter three. What is the image, right? It's man and woman with God in the garden, hanging out at the table with him, naked, bless God, and unashamed. Unashamed, exposed, vulnerable, but not afraid of rejection. Until, that is, the serpent comes along and begins to whisper in the ear of Adam and Eve. And what does he say, right? Surely, if you eat of this tree, you will not die. And God knows you'll be like him, right? He just starts to distort and twist the truth. And it says this in verse 7 through 8. And it's okay if we can't get the screens on, that's all right today, all right? Then the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what did they do? They covered up and they hid. They covered up and they hid. They covered up and they hid because they believed very wrongfully, mind you, that God, the Father, was gonna reject them. So where do they go? Into the forest to hide amongst the trees and the shadows, peeking out looking, wondering when the father was going to come walking in the cool of the day. You see, the temptation to hide only exists when you fear that you'll be rejected. The temptation to hide will only exist when you fear rejection. Now, for some of us, this is, this is hardwired into us from the time that we're little. We get in trouble we get spanked, and then we realize if we're going to get in trouble and get spanked, it's better just to hide and to lie, right? Because we don't want pain, and we don't want consequence. You know what we really don't want? Accountability. Because accountability says, no, come and, and answer for what you've done. And for some of us, it's just better to go, no, I think I'm going to hang out amongst the shadows in the trees rather than to face the music. But the father comes, and you don't get a sense from the text, at least when you study the Hebrew, that he's all particularly angry, but more as a heartbroken father, he cries out, Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? 
And I would say to us, depending upon how you read the text and interpret the text, you either hear God's voice as, a, as an angry father or as a heartbroken, loving father who wants to know where you went. And for some of you here today, you've been hiding amongst the trees and the shadows and God is calling out and he's crying out, where are you? Where are you? I think that's the question all of us have to begin with today. Where are you? Do you know where you are? When you get lost back in the day, when you go to the mall, what'd you have to do? You had to go to the kiosk, right? And find the map with the little star that says, you are here. You guys remember the day and age before GPSs and Google Maps and Apple Maps? When you had to actually pull over and ask for directions when you were lost? Yep, Jeff, you, you were notorious for that, right? As a man, you had no problem pulling over to the gas station and asking for directions ever, right? <laughs> but you got to know where you are before you can figure out where you need to be. They, the first thing they teach you in wilderness survival is figure out where you are. Find your north, right? Find your true north. Do you know where you are today? Do you know where you are? So the father comes in the cool of the day and he says, where are you? Where are you? And I think this is a question that all of us have to ask and answer for ourselves. Where are you? Because, once again, there's a place where he wants you to be. Reclining and sitting with him at his table. The second reason I think that we avoid the table is not just because of the fear of rejection, but because of feelings of shame. Yes, shame. Hey, we've got screens. That's great. Thanks, guys. The second reason we avoid the table is because of shame, feelings of shame. And shame is a killer. Shame is, is something that I think is also hardwired into us as little children, right? When we make mistakes, especially if you had a teacher or you had a parent who was just really hard on you. Anybody have a, a teacher or a parent that was just really hard on you? I'll never forget, I had this one teacher. She just really hated my guts. And she would openly make fun of me in class. Can you believe that? She used to make fun of my last name. My, my, my last name is Chatham, C-H-A-T-H-A-M. And she would go, oh, Chatham, you must be a talkative little pig. She said that to me as like a fourth grader. And that, that stayed with me for so long, you guys. And I felt ashamed of my name. I didn't even really want to tell people it because I thought maybe they would think I was a talkative little pig, right? How horrible and how stupid. And that's the power of shame. That's the power of words, right? And, and all of us contest and, and, or I should say, contend with, with feelings of shame when we've messed up and when we do things that we know we're not called to do, right? We feel guilt and, and guilt can be a good thing, right? because you don't want to be a psychopath who doesn't feel sorry for what they've done, amen? But shame takes it too far. Shame makes you stuck. It makes you wallow. It makes you its prisoner. It, it keeps you from the table because you think not only that people are going to reject you, but you think that you're unworthy because of the mistakes you made, that you're disqualified. 
That no, there's no, there's no reason I could ever be accepted again at God's table because I really screwed up this time. Because I really messed up. And that's what we see in the life of, of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.10. It goes on to say, and Adam says, but when I heard the sound of you, God, I heard you coming in the garden. I was afraid and I was naked and I hid myself. Shame is such a powerful force in our lives when we're unwilling to bring it to the Father and instead go running from the Father. Do you see what it does? It takes us not to his presence where there is life and forgiveness and mercy and grace for every need, but it causes us to run from the presence to a place that we were never created to be, hiding in the fig leaves. Hiding amongst the trees and the shadows, hoping that nobody sees what we're wrestling with in secret. Hoping that nobody knows the mistakes we've made. It's one of the major reasons that keep us from his presence. And I would say to us today that this is exactly what God wants to set us free from. Feelings of shame that keep us bound up in things that happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And can I say for all of us today, there is forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ that covers every wrong and every mistake that you've ever made and will ever ever make, which means you don't have to have an altar call each and every day and get saved over and over and over and over because the blood of the son is sufficient to handle every wrong and to handle every mistake. And I think the invitation for us is to not run from the father, but to run to the father, to bring him the things that we're ashamed of and that we're guilty of and that we're, we just can't seem to shake free of and to allow the father as a good and loving father to say, my son or my daughter, it's okay. I accept you. What you've done has been forgiven. So let's let it be buried once and for all. And let's move from the tomb back to the table. I love the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's probably my favorite story in the entire scripture. It's probably a story that all of you are familiar with. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But sometimes it's also referred to as the parable of the two sons. And as Tim Keller would say, the parable of the prodigal God. And you'll see why in just a moment. Jesus comes to his disciples and he tells them a story about two sons. One son goes to his father and asks for his inheritance while his father is still alive. Now, in a Jewish culture, especially in the first century, this was a big no-no. This is basically saying to your parents, you're dead to me. You're dead to me, so just... Give me my stuff because I don't want anything else to do with you. And what does that son do? He takes his things and he goes out and he, he wastes it. The Bible says that he squanders his inheritance and he finds himself not eating at the father's table, 
but eating amongst the pigs. And if I was really clever, I'd have pigs pop up right here, right now. (laughs) Eating in the pig pen, eating the pig slop. For you ranchers and farmers, talk to Jeff. Jeff, what do do pigs eat? Anything. Anything. (laughs) Leftovers, bones, trash, microwaves, TVs, shoes. You throw anything in there, they're going to chew on it (laughs) for the most part. But stuff that was never intended to nourish the son. And Jesus goes on to say that after realizing his mistake, realizing his mess and wallowing in his shame and in his fear of rejection, he finally comes to his senses and and believes that perhaps there could be a chance that at least his father would welcome him back in as a servant, not a son. But to his surprise, What does he encounter when he comes home? He sees his father running to him to welcome him back to the table, to the place of grace and blessing where he belongs. Not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a son. And I I want you to hear the words of this because it's so powerful. Luke 15, verse 20 through 24. And the son came and he Rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, while he hadn't even put his foot across the door, while he was yet crossing the horizon, his father saw him while he was still a long way off. And I want to say to some of you, though you may feel like you're a long way off or far from where you want to be or where you think you should be or where God wants you to be, the Father sees you. And before he could even make his way, the Father lifts up his robe and begins to run to the Son to greet him. And, and he says that he, he ran and he embraced him and he kisses him. The ultimate picture of acceptance. Embrace. And he's kissing him and he's loving him. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy. Shame. Fear of rejection, right? But I want you to hear what the father says. Verse verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quickly, Bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it because tonight we're gonna eat and we're gonna celebrate. For this, my son was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found and they began to party. They began to celebrate. That's the heart of God for every single one of us. God's not angry at you. He's in love with you. He's a father who runs towards you to embrace you and to kiss you. It's the feelings of shame and rejection that would cause distortion and cause you to believe something that isn't true about your father. And that's right where the enemy wants to keep you, in your pain, in your shame, in your fear. When the father is running to you and he's calling out and he's saying, my son, my daughter, you've returned, you're home. I've got a place for you at my table of grace with your name on it. I'm gonna kill the fattened have the best of the best. He grabs the robe. He grabs the ring. He grabs the sandals. You know why? Because his son had nothing. 
He was naked and ashamed and exposed, just like Adam in the garden. He comes running to restore. And that is the heart of our Father God. And for those of you that have only experienced religion, I would challenge you to draw close to Jesus so that you can feel the heart of God, a heart that wants to restore you, a heart that wants to redeem you, a heart that wants to heal you, a heart that wants to save you, not reject you, not push you away, not keep you with the pigs or keep you hiding amongst the leaves. No, at his side, at his table, reclining, safe, Secure, home at last. There's a third reason that I think often keeps us from the table. And it's what the Bible calls the pride of life. The pride of life. Let's put it up there. Number three today. The pride of life. Pride typically works itself out in two different ways in our lives. Oftentimes, pride works itself out in this way, where because of the things that we've done, we adopt a a false humility, right? A a pseudo-humility where it's like, oh, because I messed up, I could never be worthy of the table again, right? And it's pride. It's like, oh, no, don't do anything for me. Oh, no, no, I can't accept that gift. Oh, no, God would never want me. Oh, no, right? And it's just this this poor me, pity, shameful thing that's actually working itself out as a defense mechanism called pride. And it keeps us from the table. But there's a second way that often pride works it out, which is not that I'm not worthy of the table, but it's that I don't even need the table. I'm too good for the table the table, right? I'm too good. Actually, we see this in the story that Jesus tells and it's the older son's response. I've been with you this whole time, father. Where's my fatted calf? Where's my ring? Where's my robe? You never threw a party for me and I've been doing everything right. I've been working for you in the field milking the cows every day, taking out the trash, feeding the pig, doing all the things. Where's my celebration? Right? It's pride. And it keeps us from the table. It essentially says, because of all these right things that you've done, you don't need the table. Notice the response from the older son in Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and he heard the dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, what could these things mean? What could these things mean? And he said to him, the servant said to the older son, well, your brother has come back and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And aren't you excited, older brother? No, verse 28 says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. He stayed outside. I don't need the table. I don't need to celebrate. I mean, I've been doing everything right. 
And on account of his good works, we're left to believe that the older son missed out on the grace of God. Could it be that you and I can actually miss grace on account of our good works? Yes. Who's Jesus speaking to in the backdrop of this story? Who's the older brother? We know it's the Pharisees. We know it's the, the law keepers. And what is their argument? We've been doing everything right. And this Jesus shows up and he starts hanging out with sinners. He starts hanging out with prostitutes. He starts hanging out with tax collectors. He starts hanging out with Gentiles. He starts hanging out with Samaritans, our lifelong mortal enemy. And here we are, we've been keeping the covenant, we've been memorizing scripture, we've been doing good, we've been tithing, we've been doing all this stuff. And where are they? They're out in the cold, refusing to come in, angry, inability to experience the grace of God on account of their pride. You guys, pride is a killer. Pride will keep you outside in the cold. It will keep you in your anger. It will keep you bound. It will keep you its prisoner. The Bible says actually that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I don't need any more opposition in my life due to pride. But some of us willfully choose that position because of our own goodness, because of our own good works. And as a result, we're not at the table where Jesus and Lazarus are reclining, hanging out. But I want you to notice the father's response to the older son. The father hears that he's got a son who's not at the celebration. Isn't it the heartbeat of God that he's still concerned about the Pharisee? Lest we be too hard on them and villainize them. Come on, that's all of us. When we can't seem to recognize or reconcile his goodness and his grace in our life. And so the father comes out of the party and he goes to his son. And I want you to notice this. And he says to him in verse 31, my son, speaking to the older son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You see, the older son had access to the father the whole time and didn't know it. He was missing his father who he was with, the seat that had already been set for him at the table. All this time, he says, you've been with me and everything that I have is yours. And yet he can't see it because of his pride. But that's the heartbeat of God towards us. From a loving father who wants us to experience everything that he has for us. He says this, all that I have is yours. And last time I checked, all means all. All that I have for you is yours. It's yours. I wonder today if you and I would be willing to answer the invitation to join him at his table of grace. The table is also a place of communion. It's where we see Jesus 
at the end of his earthly days with his disciples during Passover. And what is Jesus doing at the Passover with his disciples? Well, let's put it up there today. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 20 says this, and when the hour came, he, meaning Jesus, did what? He reclined. Sorry to hate on all of you Leonardo da Vinci lovers who've been sold this image of Jesus sitting up so proper and so nice with all of his crew at the table. But the real picture is Jesus with the tab of his, his jeans pop because he just enjoyed a good meal. And he's reclining with his friends. He's chilling, as we would say in Southern California. He's hanging out, reclining, not standing up in this religious way with a halo around his head. No, hanging out like you do when you're with your friends, at peace, undisturbed, safe, secure. And who's with him? The writer of the Gospel of John. It actually, in John's gospel, he points out that he's reclining on Jesus. Could you imagine with me for just a moment what that picture might be like? Terrell, come up here to demonstrate this. I'm going to ask my good friend Terrell here to help me. Terrell, you're going to be Jesus today. And I want you to have a seat right here. And I want you to recline with me. And I'm going to be John, the author of the gospel, because this is the image that we get. It's Passover, special time. Is this you today? Can you consider yourself to be the disciple whom Jesus loved? Are you Jesus' friend? Hey, bud. Wasn't that a good meal? It was awesome, right? The lamb kebabs were amazing. <laughs> or perhaps it was more like this. I want you to put your arm around me. Okay. And this is purely platonic, okay? I have to point this out. <laughs> what do you see? Do you see shame? Do you see rejection? Do you see pride? No. You see someone who's accepted in the beloved, who knows who they are, who's free to be themselves, to be the person that God created them to be, and they're home with Jesus, and that's us, church. We are called the beloved. Thanks, Terrell. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Can you count yourself as a friend of God? Or are you still hiding amongst the leaves with the pigs? Can you count yourself a friend of God? Or are you still afraid of what people might think about you if they find out your secret? Can you count yourself a friend of God? Or are you still worried about all the good things that you did that you think means you deserve what you get and that's all there is? Or could it be that God's grace is so much better than we know 
that the gospel is so much better than we've heard. And that perhaps rather than going through the motions and pretending and trying to live our best life and present our best selves and manage our sin and and try to hide and do all the things that we do to camouflage, what if you and I were just willing to come to the table of grace and recline with Jesus and allow him just to love on us and to accept us and begin to whisper into our ear and begin to tell us who we really are and what we're really like and how he really sees us as friends and no longer servants. Like the father who says, my son has come home, restored, at peace, reconciled. Every time we come to the table to take communion, that's what we're doing. We're reconciling our hearts unto the father and the symbols, the blood and the bread, the cup and his body are symbols of fellowship and common union, meaning that we share union with Christ Jesus because of what he's done on that cross, because of the blood that he shed, because his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that we could be called his friends, friends of God. And I wonder if we'd be willing to accept the invitation to his table of grace, a place where sinners become saints, a place where the lost become found, a place where those that have squandered their rights as sons are adopted into the family of God. Romans tells us that we cry out, Abba, Father, because as believers, those who've put their faith in Jesus, we have received the spirit of sonship. We're children of God. What a privilege, what an opportunity, what a beautiful reality if we're willing to sit down at his table of grace. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.